Good morning. It's good to be here. And there's uh, probably uh, a few that are mildly okay with seeing me up here. Uh, most are disappointed that Johnny's aren't up here uh, leading us in, in worship and song. But I'm glad to be here. I told the children around the supper table last night, I said, just keep in mind to not set your heart on, on how Christmas might look like or how Christmas Eve might look like because there's a lot of sickness going around and there's people that aren't feeling well and uh, I still well remember my own time of missing New Year's Eve because I was sick at home and we never know uh, when it can start going through the family so uh, and this is something I've been trying to teach them uh, for a long time now is live in the moment and see what life hands to you and enjoy it as it comes living in the present that doesn't mean we don't plan or we don't have uh, a goal or vision for the future or purpose but we enjoy the moment without setting our heart on what's up ahead it's something that i had to learn as a youth growing into adult age and something i still uh, have to maintain but i'm thankful that i've learned the habit of of seeing how it goes and, and finding my joy in something that's much greater and transcends circumstances. And so however New Year's Eve ends up looking or however our service ends up turning out or however Christmas Day turns out for us maybe a lot different than what we expected it to. But let's joy in the reason we're celebrating. Christmas, what should I preach about on Christmas Eve? It's a special privilege to be able to preach on Christmas Eve. There's a lot of different things I could preach about. What you're about to hear is probably not something you would expect to hear on a Christmas Eve message. But you may hear things that you know that I love to talk about. I love history. I love facts. I love truth. So I research a lot. I read a lot. And so I could spend all of the time talking about the Christmas story. I've, I've researched the Christmas story for a number of years now. And I'm realizing that we are... Uh, when it comes to evidence, when it comes to where ancient history points, we have a lot of fairly big facts that are quite inaccurate when it comes to our Christmas story, when it comes to the classic nativity. And we've probably heard someone preach on that in the past, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I could, I could spend... Uh, a lot of time, since that's an interest of mine, and I like researching. I was recently researching about the wise men, and we have songs, we three kings from Orient are traveling, bearing gifts, we're traveling so far. 
Uh, but history does not support the fact that they would be three kings. There's no evidence that there would be three kings. In fact, there's no evidence to support there was even three wise men. Those are all great assumptions, but when you look at history and, and the situation of the day, it very likely was a maybe a caravan, a large, larger number, almost like a cavalry that came into Jerusalem. And if you're interested in hearing more about it, these wise men came from a powerful empire that was at the time competing for power with Rome. And they were situated on one side of Israel, Rome was on the other side, and Israel was in the middle under Roman control, but yet there was a lot of influence from this empire that stemmed from the Babylonian Empire. And these men were called wise men, or magi, and very likely came from, they were, would have been ancestors of the wise men and the magi that Daniel oversaw. He was a governor of the, of the wise men and the magicians there in the Babylonian Empire. And so very likely they were coming based on historical writings that would have been, that that would have been part of the Babylonian Empire that Daniel would have written down. We have Daniel 9, that's a prophecy that gives a very precise timeline uh, of a king to be born. They would have had that prophecy. It would have been probably at least 500 years, a 500 year old prophecy if I have my, if I have my uh, facts straight. There's, there's also a prophecy uh, that Balaam would have, he was a, a secular prophet, that he, when he blessed Israel, when God put words in his mouth, his, his last blessing that he gave Israel said, uh, in Numbers, this was Balaam blessing Israel, I see him but not here and now, I perceive him but far in the distant future. A star will rise from Jacob, a scepter will emerge from Israel. And so the wise men would have had that prophecy. They probably would not have had access to all of the, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, or the, the, the prophets, but they had those secular prophecies that were, you know, Daniel was in a secular kingdom when he gave, when he had his vision. And so that would have very likely been written down and probably passed on to the, the wise men of that time and kept in their records. And uh, so here with Balaam's prophecy, which would have been a thousand year old, probably a 1400 year old prophecy. Uh, they would have, you know, at the time, a 1400 year old prophecy for the wise men over the time of Christ, they would have had that prophecy. And it says, a star will rise from Jacob, a scepter will emerge from Israel. That, uh, they knew that when there was a, a star that rose, there would be a king that rose simultaneous to that. And so they were looking for that. Wise men they were. I love that stuff. But, uh, you know, on to the Christmas story. I would like to read the Christmas story this morning. It's very familiar. Many of us as families probably read the Christmas story at some point when we have our family Christmas. I want to read through it as a group this morning or be with all of us here. And I may give some comments as we go through uh, with just some, some interesting facts. At least they are to me. And if you like history and you like facts, maybe you'll find it of interest. But Luke chapter 2, verse one, we'll start out and we'll read, we'll read through verse 19. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus 
that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. He and Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so one thing that's interesting here is most of the nativities we see or most of the stories that we hear has Mary uh, probably going from the phrase great with child. She's approaching uh, Bethlehem and they are desperate to find a place to stay and comes to the inn and the inn is of course full. And so they're taken to a stable out back and she gives birth, you know, literally the night they arrive in Bethlehem. But the next verse would contradict that and it says this in verse 6, And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. So there was a time period that she was in Bethlehem. I just find that interesting. And it says in verse 7, She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger for there was no room for them in the inn. And so now that's another interesting thing. It's been well documented and verified by different archaeological digs and so on that this probably is a mistranslation of the word inn. And the reason for that is the houses in Israel were most likely like an all-in-one house. The houses in Bethlehem were like this where there was a, a house and so the, the, it had a lower level and an upper level. So it was like a, you could say, maybe a, a three-story house or a two-story house. So the head where the family lived was in the main part of the house. Then you went up top. On top of the house was what was called the guest chamber. And what's interesting is this word in has been translated guest chamber when uh, in the passage where Jesus went with his disciples to uh, eat the Passover meal. They went to someone's house and used the guest chamber, which was the upper room of a house. And that's the same, this, it's the exact same word. They just translated it in here in the King James. But elsewhere in the King James as well, they did, in that passage, they did translate it as a guest chamber and would be more accurate with uh, what they find history was like, the way that they lived. And part of the same structure, when you went down several steps often, down to a, a lower area, kind of a ground level area, that was where they would often bring the animals in at night. And it, was not, it wasn't separate from, uh, from the, the structure. And, and again, it wasn't really an inn. It wasn't where a lot of people stayed. The reason there was a lot of people probably at this house was there was a lot of Joseph's relatives that were also of the house and lineage of David that were staying at the same house. And the guest room was not only full, it was not private, and was not a nice place to have give birth to a child. So the way that uh, Answers in Genesis would, would uh, interpret it is very likely they took Mary when she was in labor down to the main floor of the house where the family lived. And she likely gave birth there and very likely had uh, you know, a, a midwife of sorts, someone there to help her. And when Jesus was born, the, the best place, the most convenient place that was readily located was several steps down uh, in the, the area where, where they would keep the animals, which could be called a stable. Uh, most, I think, historians would, would think it unlikely there was any animals in there because they would have led the animals out in all likelihood. 
uh, but was there in a manger, which was probably made of rock or maybe of wood, but a lot of times they were made of kind of a rock hewn out where they would put feed and, and hay in for the animals. And that was a perfect place to, to lay uh, Christ, the baby. And so that kind of gives a little different picture, but is, again, of interest to me. Um, and it says, They were in the same country, shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the, the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. And again, swaddling clothes here is just interesting for me because... We still swaddle our babies today. In fact, when Holly Beth was born and we were at the hospital, I still well remember the nurse showing us the procedure, how you swaddle a baby and how you have their arms down at their side and you wrap the blanket tightly around and how you wrap it around the back so that it stays fast. And so it's, it's a comfort to the baby to be swaddled. And I just love that it actually, you know, they were doing that back then. That kind of makes it uh, attainable to, to imagine. It was this pretty ordinary uh, in a sense, even though it was an extraordinary birth, there was a lot of ordinary things that uh, that went about. One one just uh, maybe thing worthy of mention, and uh, probably was mentioned here not long ago by someone. I think I remember where uh, you know the song that we sing, "Away in a manger, no crib for a bed." Uh, that mentions in there that uh, the animals are lowing, the poor baby wakes but something about sweet Jesus, no crying he makes. It talks about the baby not crying. I don't think I had those words exactly right. But uh, probably not accurate. I would think he was a normal baby in the sense he probably cried when he was hungry or scared. He was a human, but an extraordinary. He was fully human, fully God. And as a baby, I'm sure that he cried. <laughs> You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds." And then verse 19, we heard last Sunday, Brother Dave, but Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them beautiful story that even though you could call it the classic Christmas story, I think it should never lose its power and its inspiration in our lives. You know, one thing I, that was interesting for me, and I'm still thinking through it, but the writer of Luke mentions multiple times how, like Dave pointed out last Sunday, that Mary pondered these things in her heart when he was 12 years old, as we see further down in the same chapter here, and he stayed at the temple in Jerusalem. We know the story well how 
Joseph and Mary were on their way back and, and realized Jesus wasn't with them. They were on the way back to Nazareth, so they went back to Jerusalem. And in several days, it took for them to, to find Jesus, who was at the temple. And when his mother said, why have you done this? He said, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? And then it also says that Mary kept all these things in her heart. His mother kept all these sayings in her heart. What's the purpose of this? I think there's a reason Luke included this. And he doesn't actually record this particular story that I have in mind, but in John it's recorded then that Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. And what's interesting is that Mary played a vital role. In fact, she was the reason that Jesus' ministry became public at that time. He said, what have I to do with thee, woman? My time is not yet. And her response, according to Scripture, was to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Maybe that's why it's well for us to ponder, to ponder what Christ is all about, to keep sayings in our hearts, the sayings of the Word. Mary was prepared. She was prepared when Christ in His humanity was not ready for His ministry to be well known because He well knew the opposition. But His mother, we don't know, but could have well said, well, if not now, then when? And he honored his mother, but I think she was in that position to encourage him because she kept what was said in her heart. She was prepared. She had wisdom. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Why is celebrating Christmas important to me? And that's where we're going to leave the details of the Christmas story. And I'll talk a little bit about Christmas, maybe in a little different way. When Christ came, he, when he grew up, even at 12 years old and was in the temple, he, his first and his main opposition was the religious people of that day. Those that had went about to establish their own righteousness and therefore missed they did not attain to the righteousness of God. They were self-righteous people, which religion is self-righteousness at its core. That's religion. Now, there's, there's religion that the Pharisees had. There's the self-righteous religion, but the Bible also talks about a religion that's pure. This is one thing that Jesus said, and this is one thing that, this is why celebrating Christmas has become so special and so meaningful to me, especially in the last 10 years, is when he was in the synagogue, he stood up and got the, turned to the scripture of Isaiah, and he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me. To preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, 
to set at liberty, liberty them that are bruised. I can identify with every one of these needs because he hath anointed, he was anointed to preach the gospel to me who was poor. He was sent to heal me who was brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to me who was captive, to me who was blind, and to release those that are crushed. That was me. To preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Paul kind of expounded on this in 2 Corinthians when he said, We then, as workers together with him, beseech you that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And that's how it is. Today is the day of salvation. Today His Spirit has been poured out and is available to all who are willing to surrender their lives. And in Hebrews chapter 2 it says, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that we've heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto them that heard Him? What have we heard that we should not let slip? Is it religion? What is religion? Maybe we should define what religion is. I've heard it said, and this would have been a secular perspective, you could say, that re the religions of the world, religion is an attempt to, well, I heard it, I heard it put this way. Think of a frozen lake. There's ice underneath, there's water, and then above there's air. And the religions of the world attempt to drill through the ice and access the divine underneath. Religion is man's attempt at connecting with God. It's interesting. And I think it makes sense because I believe religion is self-righteousness at its core. What about us? What about us as a Mennonite? I would tend to, maybe I'm picking at straws, but I would tend to, to look at Mennonite as a culture, almost more than a religion. But certainly you find religious people in the Mennonite culture, and I believe you also find spirit-filled people in the Mennonite culture. But we're certainly capable of being religious and not spiritual when it comes to our culture. 
And I think probably everyone here would agree with that. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we've heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. A surrender, an emptying of ourselves is something that is, you could say, a pre-requirement of salvation, of being spirit-filled. We can't be full of self-righteousness and be filled with the spirit. But what does it mean to give up? What does it mean to surrender? What does it mean to be empty of ourselves? And religion would say, that we must live a life that is righteous, that is pious, that is strict, that is separate from the world and the way that we operate, the way that we dress. Well, to, to explain it probably most fully, you would look at the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They that was what that was their their religion that was their life that's what they believed they would have said they were living in surrender but was that the case what's interesting is often when jesus referred to the world from the what i understand when he referred to the world he often was referring to the religious system and leaders of the jews and at times the world at large. But the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life was all in among the religious system. When you're full of self-righteousness, then you're full of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So what am I trying to say? Maybe it'd be better to think, well, what does the Bible teach on that? And what does it mean to surrender? Surrender, rather, means surrendering our will. It's sacrificing our lives as a living sacrifice to God. And that happens when we're transformed by having our minds renewed. We find in Romans 12. And then we begin bearing His fruit. We begin building His kingdom. We have love and joy and peace, patience and gentleness. Many times when people talk about surrender in a religious society, they miss why we should surrender and what we gain. We gain much more than we give up. Does that mean we live however we want? Well, no, what you truly seek after, you become like. You spend your life to win the race, you're going to be living with the attitude of a winner. You may not win in an earthly race, but you'll have the attitude of a winner. And we're called to run to win. That affects how we live. But it's much different than trying to live righteously, trying to access 
favor with God by a set of values or a set of rules. And too many times, and I've seen this time and time again, where in our Mennonite culture, we often have a history of, we, we, a lot of us grew up with a strong system in place. And as we get older, we either continue with that system and, and you know, I think many times it can limit our understanding of, of spirit system can. Or you may see that, well, there's not life in our culture. There's this full of systems and rules. And so we start leaving the culture. But remember, it's, if you agree with me here, that being a Mennonite is more of a culture. It's not a religion, but there's a value system within our Mennonite culture. And my love for the Mennonite culture has only grown over time. But with that growth also comes the realization how many times that we misinterpret Scripture in our value system. What it means to surrender. What obedience looks like. what authority looks like in church, what headship and submission looks like in our marriages. Religion often has actions that aren't inherently wrong, but they're for the wrong reason. They come from the wrong source. And I find that is all too often the case in our Mennonite culture. I've been thinking through for a long time how can we as a people retain the values that are good values, that are essential in the way that we live our lives as Mennonites, without the unbiblical system of authority that has hurt and damaged many people? Without Christ, a culture is simply a cult. That's my thoughts, so you don't have to agree with it. One thing's for sure with our youth is they must learn, and that's really with all of us, we must learn to value, to see the value in our way of life, or we're not going to keep it, whether it's, there's a rules or systems that, that are in place or whether there's not. It's only a matter of time, no matter how strong the system, because if anyone had a strong system, it was the religious leaders of Christ's day, and they were full of self-righteousness. They were full of lust and greed, and, and that was permeated the very, the very thoughts of their mind to where they were taking God's commands and twisting them in a way that advantage them. You know, in Colossians 2, it says, this was Paul's plea to the Colossian church, wherefore, if you be dead with Christ, that's surrender. That's a giving up of the will. From the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? 
And so we can read that and say, why do we need rules? The Bible says here we shouldn't have to have rules. I don't think that's a proper attitude to have. I think maybe the better way to look at it is, why do you live as though you needed rules? <coughs> Subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not. Why do you need those? We can look at it, why do we have those? But I'd like to look at it, why do we need those? And I want it to be a self-evaluation. It's easy to look over our shoulder, but I want to look at it. For me, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using. All are to perish with the using. My understanding of, of that phrase is that when we live by a man-made ordinance or rule, what happens? And history can tell you what happens. It says, all are to perish with the using. What happens with a man-made rule is that with time, and you can look at our Constitution, and it's a fairly prime example, and you get amendments, and you get revisions, and you get exceptions, and with time, the rule gets twisted and stretched and pulled to the point where it's no longer any resemblance or representation of the original intent of the rule. It happens with man-made rules all the time. It happens in government, it happens in church. And I've, I've seen it, I've experienced it. All are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. And then he says, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. The NLT makes it a little clearer, and I compared it with what I could find the King James was trying to say there, and I feel it's an accurate representation. The NLT says, these rules of touch not, taste not, handle not, they seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. The men of Jesus' day appeared outwardly very pious, but you could soon tell that their tongue was not bridled. They were snakes in the grass that appeared holy and harmless, yet biting at the first opportunity, and their religion was vain. Today is no different. Religious observance can never expose the thoughts and intents of the heart. Rather, it cloaks it, but the thoughts and intents are there. The world is inside the religious person. But there's a true religion. Having a system of values is not wrong. In fact, I think true religion is brought out very well in the parable of the sower, where the seed landed in different types of soil. Well, religion 
has to do with the soil the seed lands in. Fair enough. I mean, does that make sense? That religion, true religion, is simply a system of values that promotes the growth of faith. We need true religion. Realizing what true religion is, is what makes Christmas so special for me. He brought in true religion when he sent his spirit. The spirit of the Lord causes us to preach the gospel to the poor. It causes us to offer healing to the brokenhearted and to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to offer liberty to those who are crushed or bruised. True religion before God and the Father we find in James is full of compassion. He spells it out, he says, it visits the fatherless and widows in their affliction and keeps himself unspotted from the world. Remember, the world that Jesus referred to was often pointed directly at the religious leaders and the religious system of the day. The Mennonite culture is a good culture. There's a lot of values. And you can see by the way our family lives. I hope some of you can see. Some of you may think that we don't value the Mennonite culture. Others think that we value it highly. But I value the Mennonite culture. I value our heritage. When you read writings of Menno Simons, it's amazing. It was clear that there was a spirit of God that was renewing his mind. At least in what I read, I think it's, I, I would have read a fairly limited sample of, of everything that he wrote. But he wrote some good things, and I won't take time to share them this morning. But my heart is for us at Bethel is to find and appreciate and retain, work to retain the values of our Mennonite heritage. Because we'll never, we'll never hold on to those values if we don't appreciate them or see any good in them. But with any culture, there's the danger of religion. Our religion must be true. What happens when we have true religion is we are led by the Spirit. We're led by the Word of God that exposes the thoughts and intents of our heart. We live by the Spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. We live where the law had always been trying to get us to, but couldn't because we were weak in the flesh. We no longer have to live weak in the flesh. True religion 
is not critical. It's compassionate. It's passionate. It's full of purpose. It doesn't condemn others, but rather offers salvation. But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration, not the washing of our outward body, the washing of our inward body, and then the inward washing affects the outward, and we can't point at people and say, well, you don't look right outwardly, so you must be wrong inwardly. We're very dangerous when we do that, especially I mean, we can point at, at the world, perhaps, and, and see where God describes the life of a person that is godly. But with our brothers and sisters, none of us are living in rejection of Christ, are we? It's not by works of righteousness w- w- that we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Culture and religion can, can affect application of Scripture. And I think that's okay. And so the way we apply different scriptures, there's room to apply it differently. But religion and culture can never change the principles of God's Word. I've heard it said this way that the principle is an umbrella, and as long as the application is underneath the umbrella, then it's not to be condemned. That's just some food for thought. And Peter said, chapter 3, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. That's one thing that you find in a religious culture is there's no peace. In a religious culture, it's easy and I've seen it in the Mennonite culture, to get the unity that the Bible teaches about and uniformity all confused. Uniformity is man's idea of unity. Unity of spirit is something only God gives. It's okay to look uniform, but you must be unified in spirit, not on the letter. The letter kills. The spirit gives life. Grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A religious culture is very limited in their understanding of Scripture. They usually take certain Scriptures and build huge walls and palaces on them. But we're to build with the Word of God, not walls. To build in our knowledge of our Lord and Savior. We're to grow in grace. True religion creates an environment that promotes growth in this grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior.
this Christmas, I want us to think deeply about the significance of our salvation. In fact, it would be a worthy New Year's resolution to say, I want to find out in 2024 all that I can about who God is. I want to increase my knowledge of Him. And as my knowledge increases, my joy increases and my endurance increases. But the Word of God, let it pierce deeply. Let it expose the thoughts and intents of our hearts. And let us be willing to give up everything to follow it. We can't conform God's word to our assumptions or what we've always thought was right. Surrendering is saying, I'm willing to lay everything down that I've come to know and that I thought was right. And there's some of us here this morning that need to consider that very deeply, to let it all go, everything we've been taught. Some of us may not have to, but we have to be willing to. That was one of the hardest places that I came to in my life, was wrestling with letting it all go. Starting over with the Word of God alone, there was probably the better part of a year, or perhaps more, it was a long time, that I just felt in my spirit. It was right over that time where I was saying, I have to give everything to God. And if He can't have everything, then I might as well not give Him anything. I knew surrender was something that was, it was a must the bad and the good. So over that time, I, I had this strong feeling that I wasn't, I wasn't supposed to read any books. I wasn't supposed to listen to any music. I wasn't supposed to have any other content whenever I had free time. I was to read my Bible. And whenever I was in the truck alone, I would pray and talk to God. Why am I saying that? Well, I had to be all in. I had to be willing to lay it all down. It was over that time. It was intense. But that's when my life changed. And that's when my thoughts started almost being opposite of what they used to be. Over that time, I started seeing things in hindsight. I started realizing, and I felt it was God showing me, this is how you were, this is how you are now. And it wasn't in the sense of, you need to work more on this, you need to go back and you need to take care of all this. It wasn't that. I was transformed and renewed. I had different thoughts. I had power over my thoughts. I never used to have power over my thought life. And it, it ran rampant. But I could control my thoughts. 
I, I remember the transformation that kind of happened before my very eyes. And now I can never go back. This, this will continue to the end for me. And I don't expect everyone to understand that. But I have a joy and, and a purpose that I've never had before. And I've put it this way, I've found what I had always been searching for. It's not a plateau I reach, it's, a, it's levels of realization as my knowledge of God increased. And Scripture puts it better than I ever could. Scripture says the kingdom of God is as if a man found treasure in a field and he went and sold all that he had so he could buy the field to get the treasure. I resonate with that very deeply. And it's my heart that you would too. That's what is reflected. You'll find that in all of my messages. You'll find that passion and that intention to relay it to the best of my ability, the great treasure that I found, and I'm not willing to let it go. Merry Christmas. Thank you for hearing my heart. And may God give you grace and strength as you grow in knowledge of him.